Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. As we've talked about a number of times, our podcast journey has been a wild ride, and we are immensely thankful for all of your support throughout the course of our show. To each and every one of you listening, including the Patreon subscribers. But we decided we need a bit of a break this summer. I have a couple patios I would like to drink beer on, so we're going to take a little bit of a break during the summer. Yes, and I would like to do a lot of hiking and camping and just generally being outside. And we didn't want to stop giving you these engineering failures that you know and love, so we didn't want to take a break from providing content, so we thought we'd get a little bit creative. So today, we're sharing some more of our mini failures. This time, we're sharing two shorter episodes, two of my favorite mini failures, the Boston Molasses Flood and the London Beer Flood. In both cases, giant vats used to store molasses or beer failed and sent waves of those liquids throughout the streets of Boston or London. So we picked these two because they're pretty interesting stories. They're from a long time ago. They're similar to each other in that they're both floods, but they are shorter episodes. So I think when we put the two together, it'll it'll offer a nice episode length. And I also want to mention we are going to play them back to back. So you're going to hear the Boston Molasses Flood episode. And don't stop listening. We're going to roll right into the London Beer Flood episode. So without further ado... Here is our mini failure on the Boston Molasses Flood with the London Beer Flood episode to follow right after. Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 14th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have really straightforward causes or... Some of them are really old and there's just not enough information that we were able to dig up for a full episode. And we don't have a telegraph service, so we couldn't get information that way. I also can't read Morse code. Maybe Google can translate for me. Oh, maybe. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads. For now, at least. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the Boston molasses flood. And it's not as slow moving as what you think it will be. Yeah, this is terrifying. The flood and this episode. Yeah, also known as the Great Molasses Flood. This is also an old one. This happened on January 15th, 1919 at approximately 12.30 p.m. in the North End neighborhood of Boston. The flood started at the Purity Distilling Company at 529 Commercial Street, which is now a park. I always Google map the addresses of these failures to see what they look like now. I think it's so interesting. The distilling company, you know, this was over 100 years ago, and it is it is no more, and this area is now a park. Oh, I wonder if they have a plaque in the park that like, commemorates this. Yeah, I, uh, I'm planning to go to Boston at some point in the next little bit. When I go to Boston, I'm going to check out this park. Please do, and take lots of pictures. The distilling company fermented molasses into ethanol and made alcoholic beverages and munitions. The tank had a storage capacity to offload molasses from ships and then transferred later by pipeline to Purity's ethanol plant about three and a half kilometers away in the Wellington-Harrington district. This is wild to me that they have a pipeline for molasses. It's so cool. Water pipeline, sewage pipeline, stormwater, oil, natural gas... 
all those make sense for a pipeline. I mean, even the beer pipeline made sense to me. But molasses, like, this might be the only molasses pipeline in the world. I don't think so. Maybe now. But surely there's other companies that have it. I'm sure molasses manufacturers that exist today have pipelines within their facility. This may be the only exterior. I consider those more just piping, though. I wouldn't. Yeah, that would just be piping. That wouldn't be a pipeline. Like to me, a pipeline transports stuff from, you know, two very far apart places. If it's just within your own facility, it's just piping. Either way, a three and a half kilometer long molasses pipeline like that's not a short pipeline like that's not going to the building next door like they're they're trucking this thing like it's it's going some distance like two miles of pipeline full of molasses yeah so at the time of the failure the tank had only been filled to capacity eight times since it was constructed basically brand new yeah and and so this accident occurred shortly before prohibition and it was believed that purity distilling company was trying to sell as much alcohol as possible before prohibition set in totally understand why they're why they're doing that yeah agreed and you know i haven't really put much thought into what it would be like to live in prohibition times but i imagine you know at the time you wouldn't know when it's going to end it's not it's not like they're like prohibition's going to be there for four years and then at that point it'll be done you don't know when the end date is so you're just trying to sell as much as you can or if you know if you're just an individual you're probably collecting as much as you can so that you have alcohol to drink in secrecy during prohibition times you don't know what that's going to look like wasn't there a company that uh, i believe they had bricks of grapes and they had instructions for how not to or what not to do to make sure it didn't turn into alcohol, like you shouldn't place it in your cupboard in a dark place. And it was basically how to make alcohol in this package, but they phrased it in a way where they're like, don't do this, otherwise it will turn into alcohol. That's funny. I've never heard of that. I also think prohibition was just in the US, right? I don't think Canada had prohibition. I'm very old. I wasn't around during prohibition, so I'm not actually sure. I think it was just a US thing. Yeah. Oh, no, it was a US thing because Al Capone had a large operation in Moose Jaw that used the tunnels in Moose Jaw. Yes, yes. You, I mean, you would have mutiny on your hands if you tried to take alcohol away from Canadians. I don't think that would go very well. It would not go well. Like Just like Wisconsin and the States, we don't have a lot to do during the winter besides drink. Yeah, it makes snow angels. And watch hockey. And curling. Cur- curling is big. Do you curl, Nicole? I don't, but it's really big. Like, it's a whole thing, especially in Saskatchewan. It's very popular. Well, it's popular, I feel like, across Canada. Like, there's... Every year, I think every year, every couple of years, there's the briar and there's provincial teams. And like curling is a big thing, especially even if you're not into curling as a young person, you suddenly turn 50 and you're all about curling. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sport. I've played before, but I wouldn't say, I don't know, it's a little bit um, too slow paced for me, I think. Give it a few years and you'll be really into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm working my way up to it. So we know that this vat, this vessel that was contained all the molasses, it broke leading to this great molasses flood. And the cause of this failure was a cylinder stress failure. So the tank itself could contain 8.7 million liters of molasses. And that molasses weighed about 12,000 tons. So this is not a small amount of molasses by any stretch of the imagination. The tank is 15 meters tall. It's 27 meters in diameter. Just to put that in perspective, a story in your house or a or an apartment building is, is I believe, two and a half, three meters, Nicole? Yeah, three meters. So this tank is is five stories tall. Like, there's apartment buildings in, in most cities that 
are shorter than this tank, and it is full of molasses, like 27 meters in diameter. Like that's that's also not a not a short distance. Yeah, th- yeah. So this is a five-story apartment building that is full of molasses, and it's 1919. So the we'll say the design and the construction methods are questionable at best. Yeah, and and we've seen this in a number of episodes that we've covered here. Steel manufacturing, kind of material science, isn't where it is at today. And the brittleness of steel has led to a number of engineering failures. This one isn't much different. So the tank was poorly constructed. They didn't really test it sufficiently. And this is the part that I I think is is fairly strange in this whole testing part. They didn't even try filling it with water to check for leaks. I mean, that's that's a very common thing to do for testing any sort of vessel or testing pipelines or just really testing anything that you made you you hydrostatic test it you fill it with water or you know a mixture of water and glycol and then you pressure it up and you see if it leaks like that's that's essentially no cost and yeah you can see if you see if it's going to leak and analyze it the other thing too is i mean this tank was offloading molasses from ships so it's it's right on the water there's there's really no excuse for not doing a water test on this tank and you don't i mean you don't even really need to pressurize it you really just need to fill it with water let it sit for a few hours see if there's any leaks and then drain the water yeah i i worked in projects where it wasn't anywhere close to a body of water so we either had to truck in water or made containment areas for water so when there's water right there within rock throwing distance that's that's a poor excuse for not using water to test this. Yeah. The previous day, there was a ship that had delivered molasses, and the molasses had been warmed a little bit to make it more viscous for transfer, which makes sense. We've all used molasses. It's not exactly the, the fastest flowing substance. I think it's also important to mention that the molasses temperature had raised from minus 17 to 5 degrees Celsius in a short period of time. So there is a little bit of, you know... Along with improved viscosity, there's also some expansion that comes along with that type of temperature change. And the working theory is that the new warmer molasses may have heated and expanded the colder molasses that was already inside the tank. And at 12.30 p.m., the tank burst open. The failure occurred from a manhole cover near the tank base and then grew until complete failure. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming this manhole cover uh, near the base of the tank obviously is in a bad spot for filling. I'm guessing it's used for cleaning or getting people inside of the empty tank to inspect it, assuming they may have done inspections at this time. I guess they probably didn't. The rivets were also flawed where the steel plates met and cracks had formed at the rivet holes. So at 1230, witnesses heard a roar, the ground shook, and then there was a long rumble. Others heard a thunderclap type crash. The molasses was about 40% more dense than water and had a great deal of potential energy. The wave of molasses was eight meters high. That's three stories. At its peak, and it moved through the streets at 56 kilometers per hour. It's like a house going down the street at 56 kilometers an hour. Like It would get a speeding ticket going through a playground zone. (laughs) Yes, which... For those of you not in Alberta, playground zones are 30 kilometers per hour. Yeah, it's it's like a triple-decker bus moving at, you know, city speeds, a little bit faster than city speeds, commuter roads. And it's a wall of it. It's a wall of molasses. But it smelled pretty good. 
The wave was so strong, it pushed the tank into the elevated railway structure and almost knocked a streetcar off its tracks. Several blocks around the distillery were flooded to 60 to 90 centimeters of molasses, and buildings were knocked off their foundation or crushed. So this is, I, I mean, I don't know what type of construction existed in 1919, so I some houses may have just been sitting on their foundation without being secured. I'm just going to throw that possibility out there. But this is still a significant enough wave with enough energy that it knocks those buildings off of their foundation, which... I mean, like, it, it moves a streetcar. So whether your building foundation or your house is secured to your foundation, it's still moving a streetcar. Like, those things are not exactly light. As a result of this, 21 people died, 150 people were injured, and residents claimed for decades that the area smelled like molasses on a hot summer day. A class action lawsuit was brought against the owner, and it was the first of its kind in Massachusetts and is said to have paved the way for modern corporate regulation. So some benefit did come out of this, I guess. The owner paid out $628,000 in damages, which is equivalent to about $9.37 million in today's dollars. Which isn't really that much when you think about all of the damage that occurred. I would say if this were to happen now, you'd be looking at closer to a billion dollars. Well, at least hundreds of millions. I'd go with I'd go with hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm actually not sure how they removed all the molasses. Like it, it's not exactly easy to pick up. I mean, it's not like water where you can just suction it. It's not like dirt where you can just scoop it up. So it would it would probably would have taken quite a while to remove all the molasses. Yeah, I would guess some of the molasses was removed with by adding water and diluting it so that it moved a little bit quicker and then trying to drain it somehow. Or maybe you sweep it or scoop it into wheelbarrows. I don't really know. One thing I do know, this one is a popular one and many groups have investigated this failure since it occurred. One group found that the steel walls of the tank were only about half as thick as they should have been and that the steel lacked manganese and was more brittle as a result. So again, you know, 1919, there's a lot of unknowns. A lot of early engineering failures aren't necessarily due to a lack of ethics or design mistakes, although there are a few design mistake ones as well. A lot of them are just based on things we didn't know yet. So we didn't know a lot about steel and how it reacted. I think there was probably a time where steel was steel. And you didn't know what it was made of and you didn't know how the different components in steel make it more brittle or more malleable or stronger or weaker. You just didn't know those things. There was no real way to test them. And so we, we've definitely come a long way since then. One of the examples that sticks out for me specifically is the Titanic that we did in episode 11. Again, they didn't know a lot about the steel or the rivets and how they were connecting the steel plates together. And the steel, when you combined the loading and the cold temperature of the journey across the Atlantic, the steel was actually quite brittle, which they didn't realize. And so when it hit the iceberg, you know, had it not been so brittle, yeah, it would have scraped it and maybe it would have put some minor holes in it, but it wouldn't have ripped it open like a tin can like it did. So I think while this, I guess you could say, could have been preventable, they should have water tested it for sure. There's still a lot of unknowns here that that led to this failure. Uh, student researchers at Harvard also concluded that the high-speed flood claims from witnesses were credible, which I imagine them 
trying to recreate this molasses flood and just seeing how the molasses moves through the streets and comparing that to the claims that they heard, which I would love to see occur in real life in a safe environment, in a protected environment. But I still think that would be really cool to test in a lab. Yeah, I think they probably have to scale it down. I can't see how you'd be like, we're going to build a five-story tank, fill it with molasses, and the material we make the tank of is going to be not that great. But we need to figure out if it could actually go 56 kilometers an hour. Yeah, I'd probably have to scale it down and do a bunch of modeling. But that would be a super fun project. I don't know if you could use it for like a, a capstone project for the end of your degree. But that would be a really, really neat lab to do. Brian, should we do that? We can get molasses at the grocery store. Oh, we could do that. We could totally do that. We definitely could do that. Stay tuned. We'll, we'll give it some thought. Many laws and regulations were added as a result of this accident, such as requirements for architects and civil engineers to oversee these types of, of construction. I wanted to mention back in 1919 or early 1900s, there wasn't always a requirement for regulated professional engineers to oversee the design and construction of certain projects. That was a big thing that came out of the Quebec Bridge collapse that occurred in 1907 and 1911. We covered that failure in episode six. That failure sparked a lot of the engineering regulation bodies that we have today, which I think is really interesting, but also really, really important. Also, fun fact, Boston has duck boats, which are those amphibious vessels that can drive on streets and then also in the water. And they have one that they named Molly Molasses in remembrance of this event. So there you have it, the Boston Molasses Flood. A wave of molasses flooded the streets of North End in Boston and took everything in its path. Like all of the failures we've covered, lessons were learned and new regulations were added to prevent this type of incident from happening again. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 15th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes, or they happened a really long time ago, and there's not enough information available for a regular episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about. A long list of list that is way longer than I ever expected it to be. And there's constantly new ones being added. It's great. We have content for the rest of eternity. I do not think this list has gotten shorter since I've started this show. No, it's definitely gotten longer. Please keep sending in recommendations and failures you want to hear us talk about. We love that. I just the other day got sent down a whole rabbit hole based on a recommendation that a listener sent me, and it was fantastic. It made my whole day. Honestly, it did. I love the research. It's my favorite part. That's a good thing. These episodes are also just the failure. No news and no ads, at least for now. It's like failureology light. This week's failure is about one of my favorite things. It's about the London beer flood. 
Which part's your favorite, the beer or the London or the flood? Uh, the beer part, actually. London, I'm, I'm kind of like, take it or leave it. I've been to London a couple times. It's all right. It's not my favorite city to go to, but it's all right. It looks cool. I've, I've actually never been to London, but maybe one day. It's worth going to. I just didn't get the full appeal of it, I think, because both times I went there, I did not have very much money. Mm. So I couldn't do a lot of the touristy things. So I did things like walk around lots and look at stuff. Oh, I like doing that. That's my favorite part. I also like doing that, but I want to do some of the touristy things. And I was like, it costs how many pounds to do this? And that was more pounds than I had. Fair, fair. Back to the episode, though. So this this episode is about the London beer flood that happened on October 17th of 1814. Do you think this was during Oktoberfest? Did they have that in 1814? I'm going to go with yes. I believe that's during Oktoberfest. I don't know if they were celebrating Oktoberfest. Um, relations between various countries at that time may have been a little strained. True. Britain, you weren't always nice to your friends. Especially during this period of, of the world. The flood originated at Mew & Co.'s Horseshoe Brewery in London, which is a great name, I think, for a brewery. And the brewery was located on the corner of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street. Both those streets probably still exist. Did you check out the street view of this one, Nicole? Yes, I did. Is there still a brewery there? The roads are renamed, and so I wasn't sure if there if I got the spot right. But assuming that I did, there is no brewery there. There's looks like a bank and some there's some pubs for for sure and some new buildings, but I don't think that the original brewery building is still there. Oh, that's that's unfortunate. There's a tube station. The underground, that's what it's called. So the owner of Mew and Co.'s Horseshoe Tavern, Henry Mew, his father had created the largest vat in London capable of holding 20,000 imperial barrels. This thing is massive. And Henry Mew is a little jealous, so in an effort to emulate his father, Henry decides to build a vat of his own out of wood at 6.7 meters tall and capable of holding 18,000 thousand imperial barrels i can already see how this is not going to go very well no also henry reach for the stars your container's not even as big as your dad's yeah i if you're gonna do something you might as well go full send and go forty thousand imperial barrels yeah texas sized that vat yeah so he used 81 metric tons worth of iron hoops to strengthen the vat and hold the wood slats in place good design move Similar to wooden barrels, but much, much larger. So this failure is 200 years old, more than 200 years old. So there's, a, there's not a lot of information, but I'd really like to know how he even built it. How do you get 81 metric tons worth of hoops in place? You know, they don't have a, a large giant vat factory. This is, this is 1814. How did he do it? But also in, in this time period of the world they're building massive wooden sailing ships so they're pretty good at working with wood and rudimentary iron at this point but it's still impressive that he builds this massive wooden structure with so much iron in it true so at 4 30 p.m on october 17th the storehouse clerk noticed that one of the iron bands around the vat had slipped not good the vat had 3,500 imperial barrels of 10-month-old porter in it at the time, 
which was within 10 centimeters of the top of the barrel. The band slipping itself was not abnormal, so they weren't really concerned with it at the time. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. If they've, you know, if you have a lot of bands and one of them slips and this happens all the time and there's no catastrophic failure, you kind of become complacent. And so they weren't aware that it needed to be dealt with right away. So they knew it there was something that they'd have to address eventually, but they didn't think it was overly urgent. About an hour after the hoop slipped off, the entire vessel burst open. And the force of the liquid knocked the stopcock from the neighboring vessel, and it also discharged all of its contents. So between all of this, all of these vessels breaking, they lost between 128 and 323,000 imperial gallons. That's a lot of beer and various alcoholic beverages. I'm assuming that there was alcohol in the other one. That's all. That's a big loss of probably delicious things to drink. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. And it sounds like a bit of a domino effect. So you're, oh my god, one, and then the next one, and the next one, and it's just, what do you do? I mean, there's nothing you can really do. And and it's not safe either, because there's so much water. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you might as well grab a pint and wait for it all to blow over. I don't know. This is pretty similar to the molasses flood to an extent. Why don't you tell us about that, Brian? Yeah, so in addition to destroying the other vats that Nicole mentioned, The wave of Porter destroyed the rear wall of the brewery, which was 7.6 meters tall and two and a half bricks thick. So just like we saw with the molasses incident, molasses flood, once this stuff starts going, it has a considerable amount of force and it can take out streetcars and houses and the rear wall of the brewery. So after this happens, a 4.6 meter wave of liquid sweeps down the street and it destroys two houses, damages a bunch of others, just like in the molasses flood. So the land around the brewery was fairly flat and low-lying, and the porter flooded into several occupied cellars, forcing people to scramble onto furniture not to drown. So I think personally, if my cellar or my my underground part of my house was suddenly full of porter, essentially a porter swimming pool, that might be one of the greatest days of my life. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, I don't know where to start. I don't... Okay, first of all, you wouldn't know what it is to start with because flood water is just really gross. And it probably looks like beer, at least from the pictures of it I've seen because it stirs up a lot of stuff and it picks up a lot of things as it goes. So you probably wouldn't realize what it was right away. And then when you did realize what it was, are you really would drink it. It flowed down the road. Do you know how much bacteria is in that? I have a bunch of backpacking filters, and this was a time where medical science wasn't super great, so might not be the best idea to drink this. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think the risk of food poisoning or bacterial infection or any other thing that you could get from this is um, is is far more dangerous than the cost to buy a few pints of beer. That's That's probably true, even in... Even in eighteen fourteen dollars. Yeah. Didn't your apartment flood once? Uh, twice, actually. Would you have drank that water? Uh, no. No, I wouldn't have. But that also came out of the fire system. Still water. Yeah, that's true. But, but that, that water had been sitting around. And uh, what's the term for the water that comes out of the, out of the fire systems? There's a, there's a specific term. I can't remember what it is. I'm so glad you asked because I was just about to bring it up. It's called sprinkler cheese. It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. So what happens is the water 
fills this, they fill the sprinkler system when they build the building, but then the water doesn't move. And water, when it becomes stagnant, it starts to grow bacteria and become really disgusting. Biology is not my strong science, so I can't explain it very, very well, but I can assure you that it's gross. And so when the sprinkler head first goes off, that rush of gross, dirty water that you get right away, it's brown and it's slimy. It's disgusting. It smells really bad. It's called sprinkler cheese. I've never seen it in real life, but I, and I don't want to. So so if your condo or your, your building is on fire, that's a low priority because it puts the fire out. But what happened in my condo is the fire sprinkler system, fire suppression system went off when there was a contractor working in the unit above mine that had a heat gun that was right beside the fire sprinkler. So it damaged quite a few units, 13 floors worth of damage. Yeah. That was interesting. No fire. Lots of damage. There was a waterfall coming out of the ceiling, which is not where waterfalls should be. Yes, great point. So back to the London beer flood, records show that eight people died due to the flood. And I'm not sure if some of those... I'm sure that's a combination of people getting knocked over by the wave of beer. And then I also assume that some people unfortunately drowned, especially if the beer was flowing into some of the cellars and people were having to climb on furniture. I'm sure that some people were caught off guard. They ultimately determined this to be an act of God, which would not fly today. There's no way that that would be the case today. Today, we would look at the construction of the barrel and why it failed and there'd be a full investigation. But this is 1814 and it was a different time. So because it was considered an act of God, Mew and Co. didn't have to pay any compensation. They did lose about 23,000 pounds, which is equivalent to 365,000 US dollars today in the beer that they lost, their building damage and their replacement fat. As a result of this accident, large wooden tanks were phased out of the brewing industry and replaced with concrete ones. Today, they use stainless steel and sometimes plastic. Uh, They do still use oak barrels, but they're kind of the wine-sized oak barrels. So they're three feet tall, maybe 18 inches in diameter. So luckily, these large wooden tanks were phased out. I think that's really smart. There's a lot of danger in how these are constructed, obviously, as we saw from this this flood. Um... But definitely really interesting. This was a this was an interesting one to look at, but pretty limited information for it being so long ago. So there you have it. The London Beer Flood. A giant wall of beer smashed the brewery wall open and sent a huge wave of beer down the London streets. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. We love hearing from you, especially if you've got ideas to share for future episodes. There's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.